Hey, everybody. You may not know this yet, and if you don't, prepare to be blown away. We are creating right now the first ever Stuff You Should Know book. It's called Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. And you can pre-order it now. That's right. And if you pre-order everyone, there's an incentive because you get a free gift. And don't worry if you've already pre-ordered because you can just head on over to stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com. It's a very beautiful little webpage, and it's got all the information. And if you've already pre-ordered, can't you just like upload your receipt and get that pre-order gift? Yep, you can. And they will mail it off to you and you will get it in the mail and you say, oh, thank you. Don't mind if I do. And it's a poster that you will love and cherish and possibly pass on down to your children as an heirloom. That's right, everyone. We couldn't be more excited about this book. It's really coming together well. It's us through and through. And you can go check out some excerpts at stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and we are comrades in arms here at SYSK. Stuff You Should Know. Let me ask you something. Okay. When you were researching this and thinking in your brain about talking about it, did you get nervous? No. Okay. I guess you did? A little bit. What were you nervous about? Talking about the friggin' KGB. Yeah. Oh, and, how like they, and how they just kill anyone that they don't like. Oh, okay. Now, you know, I got the most nervous ever when uh, we we recorded, I wrote on, and we recorded on Delta Force. Really? Mm-hmm. I was really nervous. Do you think they're going to come kill you? I, I don't know. I mean, they're supposedly, they're not supposed to exist, and we were talking about how they do exist, so I was like... Surely not. But no, I I know what you're talking about. It didn't happen in this one. So maybe this is the one that'll get me. Because <laughs> KGB, you know, those are the, and it even says in this article, like, when you think about the knock on your door in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. come with us. That's KGB ops right there. Right. But that was if you were a Russian, a Soviet citizen, which is it's true. So, something, it's weird because, like, you, you know all about the KGB just having been raised as a Cold War kid, you know? Um, but I never really put two and two together that it was a really all-encompassing um, secret police kind of thing that they had going on. Because not only were they big on spying and getting their hands on advanced weapon technology and running disinformation campaigns around the world and trying to destabilize the United States and its its reach— around the world, um, they also were really focused internally and domestically as well so that they were a secret police force that would come and get dissenters and send them off to prison camps in the middle of the night. They, they basically did it all, and all of it was geared, Chuck, toward keeping the Soviet Communist Party in power. And they, they were successful for several decades, actually. Yeah, and... Um I mean, from reading this research, it seems like, I mean, they did do all the things, but their main charge was squashing from within, it seems like. Squishing your head from within. So KGB stands for, I'm going to try and read this in in Russian, uh, Komitet, that's easy, Mm -hmm. with a K, Yeah. Uh, Gosudars Vinoy. (laughs) <laughs> Bisopasnosti. 
It sounds like you just raised like an Aramaic demon. <laughs> Klatu, Varata. <laughs> so that means uh, in English, Committee for State Security. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were headquartered, and we're going to say were a lot because technically the KGB itself uh, is not around anymore. It's just been renamed though. So <laughs> same stuff going on, same place. They were and are, and are now headquartered under the FSB at Lubyanka Square mm-hmm. in Moscow. Which is where the this, KGB was, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's where the headquarters was and still is. <laughs> right. And it's this big, you know, beautiful sort of intimidating building right there in the square. And, um, th- I mean, that's just par for the course. The KGB has basically been this entity that's changed names and official titles multiple times since the very beginning of the USSR. Um, but it's still the same thing, and... It's it, there, it's actually really instructive to um, to study it because it seems that they are still very much up to the exact same things that they've been doing for oh, sure. decades now. And everybody very famously is well aware of uh, the GRU, which is military intelligence. But it seems that the GRU, the FSB, um, and another group called the um, SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, are all basically like the KGB, they're just, it's just now been divided into separate entities, but they're all working together. But yeah. after the 2016 election, everybody got a pretty, pretty obvious taste of what the KGB has long been up to, which is yeah. trying to, to meddle in American politics and trying to sow discord among Americans ourselves. Um, and it, it, this is nothing new. Apparently, they've been doing it since the outset. Uh, well, actually, since after World War II, at least. Yeah, I mean, they've been doing this. If you talk <clears throat> about sowing discord, uh, there was Operation Pandora in the 1960s, which was basically the Soviets trying to start a race war within the U.S. Yeah. Uh, infiltrating groups like the Klan, uh, the Jewish Defense League, and the African-American militants, posing as them, making fake pamphlets. Um, from the different organizations and and uh, blasting those out to basically try and start a race war. It didn't work, but it did create discord. Um, they've also posed as uh, people from Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and mm-hmm. they're still doing the same thing today. Yeah, except now they're doing it in this hyper-accelerated manner because things can spread so much more quickly on um, on social media. And you can turn so many people's opinions on social media so much more quickly as well. So there doesn't seem to be officially any any disagreement uh, that the that the Russians meddle in American affairs. And I've I have long been like, well, you know, I, that does, it doesn't excuse it, but you know, we can't ignore the fact that America meddles in other countries' affairs too, and has for a very sure. long time too. And that is definitely instructive, also, and something to pay attention to. But first of all, it's a whataboutism. But secondly, from what I read, there's this um, scholar who wrote this really, really interesting article in the uh, Brown Journal of Public Affairs, I believe, is what it was called. Uh, yeah, the Brown Journal of World Affairs. A guy named Calder Walton wrote this um, this this article on the KGB and its disinformation campaigns. Super readable, really exciting kind of. Um, but he basically says, yes, America has done some very, very shady stuff in the affairs of other countries and in its own affairs too, like, you know, the CIA dosing 
Americans with LSD to see what happens kind of thing. Um, but it, the Americans and the Brits operations just pale in scope and breadth compared to what the KGB has done and what it seems like the FSB is now still doing right now. Yeah, not not nice guys. So I'll, I just want to shout out that um, that that uh, article. It's called "Spies, Election Meddling, and Disinformation: Past and Present." You should check it out. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look into the KGB <laughs> and spying and espionage, there are so many great articles and documentaries on YouTube that you can watch. Um, some a little more fun than others. Some very dry. The BBC has a two-parter on the KGB that's very dry but very instructive. Mm-hmm. Um, so the KGB, if you want to talk about uh, that organization, you got to go back to pre-KGB in December 1917 when Lenin created a secret police agency called the Cheka, mm-hmm. uh, C-H-E-K-A. Uh, they were the punishing sword of the revolution is what they were known as. And this was this was basically, the like you said, it's gone under many names. It was the KGB before it was called the KGB. It was there to keep leadership in power. Um, imprisoning, killing uh, opponents both abroad and within the country, mm-hmm. keeping people under surveillance, censoring news, uh, and basically starting the espionage program uh, on foreign soils. Yep. Um, the Cheka was followed by the OGPU, then the KGB, then the FSB slash SVR. But from that moment, the Cheka was formed till today. There has been a steady, continuous basically unbroken security apparatus that has been Mm -hmm. charged with domestic and external um, spying, surveillance, espionage, all that jam. Um, Yeah. From the the get-go. Today, they might still call themselves Czechists uh, within the organization. It's a a name, the Cheka, that that original name has kind of stuck around uh, if you're sort of on the inside. Uh, And they, you know... There are many ways that they can get what they want. Uh, this one was a pretty interesting example here. Um, at one point, there was a group early on in the uh, Soviet Union's existence where they had some socialists, some anti-communists um, that basically got together and they said, we're an organization now called the Monarchist Union of Central Russia. And what they didn't know is that the Monarchist Union of Central Russia was actually infiltrated by so many moles. It was a, a fake organization that real people joined that were socialist and anti-communist. Mm-hmm. But it was all a big setup to get them all in one place, basically, root out who they were. You know, you got to know your enemy, mm-hmm. know who your resistance is. And they found who they were and they killed them. Yeah, isn't that nuts, man? That, like, think about the effect that it has, not just in in getting rid of your opposition by forming a, a group where they all show themselves, but also, like, that becomes legendary. Like, that's one oh, of the sure. first things that this, this group, this security group did. And, like, it basically sends a pretty clear message, like, don't, you can't even trust your own, the people you think that, that, are your allies, you know? It right. Just, talk about sowing discord among, you know, opposition. That's just, and, and like that was a hundred years ago, and it still like can give you chills just to think about that. Yeah, I mean, you start a group that you think is going to be battling your oppressor, and it turns out that group is 
so infiltrated that it's not even a real group. Well, I got the impression that it wasn't even that they were infiltrated, but that the Cheka, or I should say the OGPU, actually started that group to they attract did. people. You know what I mean? No, that's what I'm saying. They infiltrated the, that circle. Yeah. And oh, then yeah, started yeah. this fake organization. Yeah. That's so nuts, man. So one thing that a lot of people uh, forget, and our younger listeners might not realize, is that back in World War II, the U.S. and the USSR were allies. We weren't like BFFs or anything like that, but we were. We had a common enemy in the Nazis, us, the U.K., the U.S., um, and the Soviets. And um, I, I read that from this time of basically working with the U.S. and the U.K., the USSR saw how good we were at disinformation campaigns. And it had two effects. It taught Soviets how to do these things. It basically said, hey, this is a really good way to sow discord and um, to get fake information out, um, like, with your enemy. So it taught the Soviets how to do that. But it also made the Soviets think that they just presumed that the U.S. and the U.K. were were creating the same operations in the USSR, too. So it really kind of hardened the Soviets' enemyship of America. Like, it really kind of predisposed the USSR to be enemies with the U.S. and with the U.K. and with the West yeah. in general. Um, and it just kind of took off from there. And just to be clear, I saw a good distinction definition between misinformation and disinformation. Where misinformation is clear where the source of the information is coming from, it's just the information is faulty. So the government, the U.S. government is giving out like bad info about coronavirus or something like that. That's misinformation. Disinformation is where the information is faulty, but it's it's not clear where this the information is coming from or where it came from originally. It's just popped up as like a rumor or something on social media. Um, right. But the, the information is faulty either way. It's just whether the source is clear who the source is or not. That's gotcha. that's what disinformation is. So the Cheka are operating in World War II. Uh, they are spying on our Manhattan Project such that uh, there's one quote in here that said they knew more about the creation of the atomic bomb than Truman did. Yeah. Uh, they've really infiltrated things. This uh, gave them a huge leg up in making their own bomb and their efforts to um, welcome themselves into the atomic age. Like they would have been way, way behind had it not been for their espionage efforts in there uh, in America. Uh, there are ways that they did this. Uh, there were spies who were um, sort of the tried and true ways to pose as a diplomat um, and actually get in an embassy in a different country. But you're really a spy. Right. Um, you could also, if you've seen the movie The American or the TV show The Americans, that's called an illegal when you basically pass yourself off as someone of that nation's origin. Um, after World War II in Finland, they would find records of infants who died at birth, take that identity, and then basically become a Finnish person. It's called a legend. And you are essentially living in that country as an American or as a Finnish individual but you are really a secret agent for the Soviets. Right. And I mean, like, super duper deep cover. Um, so much so that you can expect to go live like a pretty mundane, everyday existence for years or decades as an American or as a Finn or something like that, whatever your background, wherever it says you're from. Um, and then you might be called on to uh, assassinate somebody one day um, or to start 
um, working sources. And the, the, it's not flagrant. It's not obvious. The point is, is that they make kind of um, contacts and friends with low-level people at the edges of power is how I saw it described. But I also saw that same person describe um, who describes uh, illegals like that as um, saying that there's probably more of them in the world today than there was even during the Cold War. That's so scary. Isn't it scary? But here's the thing. This is one thing that I've learned about studying the KGB. It's possible there are far fewer illegals in the world today. Maybe there's zero in the U.S. But the fact is, somebody said that, and the KGB's track record is enough that it's possible that's the case. Right. And that's, what and that's all it takes. Now all yeah. of a sudden people are paranoid. And like, wait a minute, you, Tulsi Gabbard, are you actually a tool of the Kremlin? Are you a plant by the KGB? Are you a sleeper agent who's running for president? Like it, it, people start to get accusatory and you can't trust anything anymore. And now you're starting to see your enemies all over the place. And all it took was a rumor that there's more sleeper agents that are associated with the KGB today than there were in the Cold War. And now everybody's paranoid and the KGB's work is done for the day. And that could simply be disinformation. Exactly. Exactly. Be- because disinformation can, it takes on a life of its own. That's the point of disinformation, that it makes people behave differently than they would if they had not heard that rumor and started to believe it. Yeah. Because the other fact about disinformation, we should do an entire episode on it, I think, is that it has to have a kernel of truth. Like, th- like the Black Panthers have to suspect that the Jewish Defense League is um, or was prejudiced against them secretly. And so, like, these documents that that were found or sent to the, the Black Panther headquarters just prove this suspicion that they already have or something like right. that or vice versa. Um, so it has to have, like, this kernel of truth for somebody to be like, no, here's the proof. And then it just takes off from there because people love urban legends. I wonder if there's ever been an army colonel named Colonel Truth. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. I think we should take a break and ponder that. And uh, we'll come back and talk about when the KGB was born right after this. Stuff you should know. Josh and Chuck. Stuff you should know. So the KGB, I promise to tell you, it's the, when that little baby was born. That little baby was born in 1954 when uh, the intelligence agency that, had, like I said, long been operating, was reorganized officially finally as the KGB with that same mission in hand. They were known as this, this time as the sword and the shield of the Communist Party. And if you're talking about the structure of the agency itself, it depends on – I mean, there's a lot that we don't know, but um, – it depends on who you're asking. I've seen anywhere from a quarter of a million to 700,000 people on staff if you count the whole extended network of, uh, like, foreign border guards and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think 700,000 is the most I've I've seen, which is an but enormous a huge, amount. Yeah, huge, huge compared to any kind of, like, CIA or any other country's intelligence organizations. The KGB is just massive. Right. Um, the other thing that I saw about the KGB is that you can make a pretty good assumption that just at, especially during the, the Cold War, um, that every single one of those agents were loyal to the Communist Party. And one way that they made sure that every single agent was loyal to the Communist Party was to basically let them know that 
the other part, other members of the KGB were spying on them. There was um, entire sections that were dedicated to spying just on the armed forces, just on the military alone. Um, and that was one of, I think, 20 different directorates, um, little divisions that were responsible for different kinds of tasks or different specializations. Yeah, the official, like if you want to look at the official sort of charge of the KGB, um, it has four areas in size. It is the struggle, or an organization, I guess, the struggle against foreign spies and agents, mm-hmm. uh, the exposure and investigation of political and economic crimes by citizens. Mm-hmm. That certainly encompasses a lot. Uh, protection of state borders. That's what I was talking about, like the border um, guards and stuff like that. Right. And then this is the big one, protection of state secrets. Right. And then, so, like, th- those are the big four, but there, every, like, there was another, about 16 of them dedicated to everything, like, making sure that the phone and radio systems were encrypted, um, to making sure the tr- transportation sector wasn't infiltrated. Like, the KGB had its fingers in absolutely everything. There was one directorate that was specifically tasked with surveilling and monitoring foreigners and people who the KGB suspected were— um, were potentially dissidents who were Soviet citizens. And they they mostly hung around like Leningrad and Moscow because that's where most of the tourists were. But that was like a whole KGB division. That's how many people they had and how many resources they threw at keeping tabs on the power structure and making sure that any challenges to the power structure were squashed in the cradle. Not even strangled in the cradle, squashed <laughs> in the cradle. Yeah, and you know they recruited the the best, the the smartest people, the brightest people. Um, but like you sort of mentioned, it's not like like the KGB was something to be feared by every uh, um, citizen of the Soviet Union. I think. Oh yeah. But join but joining the KGB to thwart that was not. It's not like that got you out of any sort of surveillance, or and in fact, it may have even put you under a bigger microscope. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, they they had every level of the military infiltrated with KGB agents, like every platoon, every detachment. If you were in a group with the military, with the military, somebody was a KGB officer posing as a a soldier. That's right. In their own military. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By the end, I mean, I think it started, like I said, in 1954, by the end of the 1960s, it was firmly, firmly in place as as the watchdog of everybody in the in the Soviet Union. Right, um, and I mean, again, with the like, people tend to say like, well, the the, the KGB was the counterpart of the CIA, but the, I mean, and the CIA's done some shady stuff, including domestically, but from from basically all sources. The main point of the KGB was domestic surveillance and domestic or control of domestic challenges or dissent toward the Communist Party. That's right. Um, Spying on people, tapping phone lines, harassing people, Mm -hmm. arresting people, exiling people. Um, If you were a religious activist, good luck. If you were a human rights advocate, good luck. Um, if you were an intellectual, if you were just a, you know, part of the intellectual um, sort of university system of the Soviet Union, you better watch what you say because uh, you are definitely being watched, and every word that comes out of your mouth, even in a classroom, is is being recorded. 
Yeah, and I mean, some if you were super high profile, you might make it out with your life and your family might get out alive, but you would be exiled for criticizing the government. Um, a writer named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> I even practiced that. Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, I think that's kind of close. He, uh, he was uh, actually, I think, a science teacher who started writing books about how bad things were in the Soviet Union and uh, eventually won the Nobel Prize for literature. But um, he was eventually exiled. If you were um, less of a well-known person and you were critical of the government, you were more likely to find yourself in the gulag, which is a a system of um, prison camps that we referenced earlier. And um, and Solzhenitsyn, I think I said it right that time. I think that's right. He estimated that um, about 60 million people were sent to those camps over the course of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible, literally impossible, to put a number on the amount of human lives lost due to the KGB. But there are people that have estimated uh, like perhaps tens of millions of people uh, taken out by the KGB over since its history. Mm-hmm. It's which is, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm no CIA apologist, but <laughs> I don't think the CIA has that Not on tens their of hands, millions. You know, which again, I mean, you we we on the outside tend to think of the KGB mostly as like the spy agency, but yeah, they they kept people in line by killing them or sending them to secret prisons and making them leave in the middle of the night from their homes and never be seen again. Um, it's just it's just completely nuts, and the effects that that has on a society is yeah, just I can't I can't imagine I can sadly, but I I can't imagine I've never lived through anything like that. Yeah, and if you know um, if you run an organization or a or a country or a nation from fear tactics mm-hmm. from the top down. That eventually is going to bite you in the behind because what that does is everyone's paranoid against each other. Right. Um, no one, like in the case of uh, Stalin, let's say, if Stalin didn't like what you told him, he would literally shoot the messenger. <laughs> uh, he would execute anyone who told him anything that didn't uh, basically uh, support what he thought should be going on. Like it wasn't like, hey, Stalin – um, we found out some pretty bad stuff that's going on. Like, that's a good thing. That means we can root these people out. You, it got to a point where they wouldn't want to go to Stalin with bad news. And that's that's not good either. No, and it, it, they had to go to him with some news. So what they would do, it would just kind of naturally uh, incline toward intelligence that supported their, their view right. rather than um, – you know something that said, "Hey, there's you're really unpopular, and there's there's an uprising potentially coming." They managed to squash anything like that, but in the end, um, this what's called sycophantic um, intelligence, where it's just basically feeding you, telling you what you want to hear. That mm-hmm. does, that eventually will run afoul of reality, and that's what people credit um, with the KGB dropping the ball on the fall of the Soviet Union uh, back in 1991. Although. As we'll see, there's actually a lot of direct influence that the KGB had on that. But there's this idea that throughout its history, there was Stalin kind of kicked off that thing where just tell me what I want to hear or else I'm right. literally going to kill you. Um, 
or to and that that it was carried on even long after Stalin was gone. Oh, uh, sure. That sycophantic kind of intelligence, which is really surprising because there was a really successful organization externally. Um, it was that they think that potentially for as as good as they were at espionage and stealing secrets, um, the, the Soviets were apparently not, and I have to preface this, let me just caveat this. This is reading American sources about the KGB. Right. The KGB was really good at keeping a code of silence. There were, especially toward the end of the USSR, more and more KGB agents started to defect. But even when they defected, we weren't sure if they were plants. So there was still like what they said was taken with a grain of salt. Um, but the the idea that um, that the KGB was was very successful in stealing secrets supports this idea now that the Soviet Union would not have been a superpower. Um, part of this two-superpower two polarity that ran the world during the Cold War had it not been for stealing secrets, which oh, sure. doesn't explicitly say it, but suggests that they were, um, they did not have the best and brightest as far as technology and science is concerned, which is kind of a surprise to me because I'd always heard that the Soviets had really, really smart scientists in their own programs too. But this researching the KGB made it sound like they wouldn't have been able to keep up had they not stolen advanced weapon technology um, and built their own versions of it. I'm, not, I'm confused. I have no idea what's true anymore. Yeah, I Welcome mean, to I, think, 2020. I think it's definitely true that their spying efforts in the Cold War, especially when it comes to nuclear armament, were uh, very much ramped up because they were spying with us. Yeah, but I think that on the, us. they were saying um, they were saying it wasn't just getting the atomic bomb, but basically like all their advanced weapons technology was the sure. result of stealing it. And the, the, the point is, is kind of a two-handed compliment or backsided compliment um, that they they were really good at stealing secrets, but that they wouldn't have been able to be a nuclear superpower without stealing secrets. I think that was, that was what I was, that's what I found. Well, and it also could have been, and I'm just speculating, it could have been a thing where that was such a part of the system was that is, hey, we don't need to put resources for steps one through five because we can steal that stuff. Right, exactly. And we can just start on step number six or whatever once we have whatever intelligence we need. Sure. But what do I know? I'm just a dumb podcaster. <laughs> do you want to take another break? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Okay, we're going to take another break, everybody. That's no secret. Stuff you should know. Josh and Chuck. Stuff you should know. Man, what is going on? What's wrong? I'm making puns left and right. It's terrible. <laughs> Can we talk about spies? Sure, yeah, let's do it. So, uh, I think we did a... We did an espionage podcast years and years ago, I think. Yeah, spies, how spies work, I think. Was it just spies or was it so. espionage as well? Well, they go so closely together. No, it's basically in... the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Soviets were really good at, well, I don't know about really good because who knows how many times it happened. But they had some very effective moments of turning uh, Americans into double agents. Um, a few notable people over the years 
uh, a man named Aldrich Ames. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was uh, a 31-year CIA officer and for about nine years was feeding uh, the Russians, or I guess it was the Soviet Union at that time, um, highly classified information from the CIA. His big thing, it seemed like, was outing uh, CIA sources and and stuff like that. Like, yeah, turned KGB agents. Yeah, so, I mean, there's all kinds of ways. There were other people that fed documents. Uh, we'll get to them in a minute, but he was outing sources, and I think his actions directly led to at least, that we know of, 10 CIA sources uh, being compromised and killed, and then, you know, in the hundreds of intelligence operations that he was he was kind of dropping the dime on. And that's, I mean, in addition to, the like, the loss of life, as far as your, the intelligence community is concerned, when you when you kill somebody like that, it, you're killing like decades worth of information that the person has walking around in their head and contacts and just general knowledge of how things work. Um, so it's a really big deal in addition to, again, killing somebody. You're wiping out like the institutional memory that they, they carry with them too that's been helping out the other side. Yeah, he is in a medium security prison in Indiana today, uh, serving a life sentence, um, as is Robert Hansen. Uh, he's one that is a little more, uh, I mean, he worked up until the, I think, 2001. Mm-hmm. And they said that his espionage was possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. Uh, he made about $1.4 million in cash and diamonds over the years, selling classified documents uh, to the KGB. Um Total double agent caught in 2001 after the FBI paid seven million bucks to a KGB agent uh, to out him as a mole. Um, Very famous case. Yeah, I remember that as well. I remember Aldrich James too made it really easy on people. Like he was like spending lavishly and was not that well off to begin with, and was just just being very flagrant about it. I feel like Robert Hansen was a little smarter about it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, who was the other guy? There was one other guy that uh, basically was spilling secrets about our submarine program. I don't, I don't know. There was a uh, there was a naval captain after World War II, somebody St. John. Was that in the 60s? Is that was that him. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember his first name, but someone St. John, he was a naval a naval captain. Yeah, there was a trove of KGB um, files from an operation from the 60s that basically confirmed he was indeed a Russian spy. Both of the Rosenbergs were indeed Russian spies. Alger Hiss, who I think went to his grave denying that he was a spy, was in fact a spy for the for the Soviets. So they did have a pretty good success of turning Americans into informants. Uh, so did the CIA and the KGB apparently. But um the 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 stuff that they got was was pretty useful and again it was not limited to advanced weapon designs, but also industrial technology, stuff that we were saying, there's embargoes on this, you can't export this, they still managed to get their hands on this because of their contacts um, that they turned in the U.S. Um, just just basically anything you would want to keep your your economy humming along just from from stealing. That's how you could, that's how you could do that. Yeah, the Navy guy, his was, uh, he, he's the one that volunteered himself basically 
by because he wanted money. It's like it all came down to greed. Mm-hmm. He walked into. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I'm talking about John Anthony Walker Jr. That's who I'm talking about, too. Um, okay, not St. John. Not St. John. <laughs> he was not a saint. patron saint of <laughs> hipsters. I don't know. Yeah, John Anthony Walker Jr. is the one that, that wanted money, and he he volunteered by—because it's not like he was a anti-American who wanted to see the Communist Party thrive. He It was all uh, motivated by greed, and he walked into a, an embassy in the United States with like a— a code card or something and said, hey, I'll sell you this for $3,000. And they bought it. And he was like, and you know what? That went well. So just put me on the payroll. And he got his family involved. He had his, uh, I think he tried to get his father involved, his daughter, his son, his wife. His son's um, baseball coach, everybody. Well, it, at one point, the the Russians basically knew where all of our submarines were at all times because That's of this right. guy. That's right, yeah. And his wife was apparently a really bad alcoholic, um, probably, you know, in no small part due to this, and eventually outed him after, I mean, he was way too uh, loosey-goosey with who he tried to get involved. Like, Uh you can't try and get your whole family involved and then have them say, no, I'm not into it, and then just be like, all right, well, I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) What's for dinner? Yeah, she ratted him out, though. She um, would call a bunch of times, apparently, and and either— chicken out or she was uh, really blitzed and couldn't get across what she wanted to say. But eventually she did to an office in Boston and they thought, well, this is just some drunk wife trying to get her husband in trouble. Ignored <laughs> it. Like a and then thing, think. <laughs> eventually though, they did look into it and they, you know, they searched the guy's house and they found like briefcases full of classified documents. And it was just, uh, I mean, this, this went on for, 20-something years, I think. I think, from what I understand, the most damning evidence was he had one of those Russian fur hats <laughs> yeah. with the ear flaps. <laughs> that did him in. So, um, the, the, as good as they were at turning people, at creating illegals, those sleeper agents, which may or may not be all over the world right now, um, one of the things the KGB has long been known for are disinformation campaigns. And from reading that um, that that guy's uh, article, Spies, Election Meddling, and Disinformation, Past and Present, Calder Walton's article. Mm-hmm. Basically, every every conspiracy theory that I believed as a teenager apparently was a KGB rumor, a disinformation yeah. campaign. I could not believe this as I was reading. It was like a, a trip through my, my, you know, formative years, basically. The idea that the U.S. government created AIDS to yeah. target developing countries. KGB. The idea that um, <laughs> that American tourists used to go down to South America and Central America and adopt kids so that they could harvest their them for body parts. Mm-hmm. KGB. Get this, Chuck. There's a poll. I don't remember when it was conducted, but it was sometime after the Kennedy assassination where more Americans believed that the CIA killed JFK then what the Warren Commission concluded, which was that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, more Americans believed what turned out to be a KGB disinformation campaign than what the Warren Commission came up with. That Amazing. They, they, they came up with the one that the CIA killed JFK. That, that was the KGB that did that. And You know, the, the friend of your friend's uh, mom who was on the elevator with Eddie Murphy? <laughs> right, KG, exactly. KGB. 
That's right. Everything. I mean, all that stuff. Flash your lights at somebody and the gang comes and kills you. KGB. Um, but it's just so bizarre to think, like, what? Like, no, I thought that I talked to people about that, like, late at night. Like, we yeah. had conversations about this stuff. And when you see that and when you read it and realize that, like, this has been going on for years, it really puts things into focus now. Um, like the 2016 election meddling. Sure. Um, to the the idea that there's like, like GRU agents, military intelligence agents who are posing as members of Black Lives Matter or who posed as like Tea Party members during the right. 2016 election, like that they, um, that they were actually working for the the for Russia. The idea that that that's still going on just becomes all the all the more clear when you look at some of their past campaigns. <laughs> Something I do occasionally. Uh, I don't know why I torture myself, but sometimes I will uh, read comments on a foxnews.com article and someone will say something and then you can leave a comment about the comment and someone will comment like, okay, thanks a lot, Dimitri. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) But you don't know, man. That's what they do. They infiltrate message boards and they infiltrate social media. And um, like you, you never know, like, uh, yeah, it's it's just it's really it's staggering that this kind of stuff still goes on to this degree. Yeah, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, for real. So so let's um let's step back for a second because we kind of hopped ahead, but I want to go back into KGB history. KGB was around from 1954 to 1991, and we said earlier that the um the KGB had a direct role in the fall of the USSR, and they did, because there was a KGB um, head who was appointed by Gorbachev because he thought that he was an intelligent, moderate person who Mm -hmm. was open to new ideas, and it turned out he wasn't. He was part of that same old KGB establishment um, who wanted things to stay the way that they were. And um, he actually led a coup against Gorbachev. I did. I was too young to know what was going on, but there was a coup against Gorbachev where he was under house arrest for a minute. Yeah. And um, the coup finally failed because it became clear that the military wasn't, wasn't in on it or wasn't going to take part in it. Um, but it eventually led directly within months to the downfall of the USSR, the breakup of the USSR. Because in the meantime, they had elected for the first time a democratically elected president. And when Gorbachev saw that basically this coup was a vote of no confidence in him. He stepped aside, separated the Communist Party from the presidency, and all of a sudden, the USSR wasn't there anymore. It was just Russia because these satellite states started saying, um, hey, we're independent now. We'll see you later, Soviet Union. And the USSR fell apart, kicked off by this coup that the, the KGB initiated. Yeah, and I think Yeltsin, uh, or Yeltsin, excuse me, officially split it up, right? Yeah, yeah. He he said, KGB, you're dissolved. We're going to break you up into the FSB and the— Yeah, do the same stuff. (laughs) Right, exactly, but just do it separately. I figure if I separate you guys, you might be less evil. And apparently that was not the case. Yeah, and apparently, uh, not apparently, but very famously, Putin came straight out of the KGB— uh, he was a KGB agent in the mid-1970s, mm-hmm. uh, supposedly because he saw a movie about Russian spies and, I guess, thought it was awesome. 
Yeah, he said, I want to do that. <laughs> There's a picture of him in one of these articles where he's in the 70s wearing like this newsy cap and just looking super 70s. Yeah. But he also looks like Putin, man. Just complete poker face. He's yeah. staring off camera at something. Who knows what he's taking in? It's 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 a really cool picture. There's another picture, too, supposedly of him posing as a tourist standing next to Ronald Reagan. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen that picture? No. Oh, it's nuts. It's just so great. But then you're like, is that Putin? And I went and looked, and it turned out that there is still disagreement of whether it's him or not, but most people say that that's not him, that he would have been in uh, Dresden uh, at the time. He wouldn't have been in the Soviet Union. I'm looking now. At, oh, my God. That certainly looks like Putin. Doesn't it? But the official line is that is not Putin. <laughs> With his little camera around his uh, neck. <laughs> right. And so Putin was not just in the KGB. He became the head of the FSB. And this yeah. is a real testimony to just how powerful the KGB and the KGB's remnants or successors remain. He went from head of the FSB to the president of Russia. That was the step that he took. And he was not the first person to do that. Other KGB heads had worked their way up to become the head of the Communist Party and the de facto head of the Soviet Union at the time. So all of this kind of goes to show you that that nothing, even the fall of the USSR, really did anything to slow down the KGB. And the, the advent of technology helped kind of actually speed things up quite a bit. Yeah, and if you think those murders... Um or a thing in the past, that is certainly not the case. Uh, I remember, as I'm sure you do, in 2006, uh, Alexander uh, Litvinenko. 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 Yeah. He was the one that was killed by the radioactive uh, polonium-210 that was dropped in his beverage. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they have a history of doing... Like, that's a really awful way to die. And they have a history of killing people in really awful ways, because it sends that message right. um, that, you know, not only can you die, but you're going to die in a really awful, awful way. And everyone's going to know, um, dating back to uh, Trotsky, who <laughs> went to Mexico City and someone came up behind him, uh, Ramon Mercator, with a ice axe and sunk it three inches into his brain. He said, how do you like this projection? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That was actually so bad. I think that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I was hoping you'd come around to that way. That was really good. Thanks. I got you. Mercator projection. That's yeah, lovely. Sure. Um, but yeah, he killed him with an ice axe, but he lived for a day. I thought I'd always heard the story and I always thought that he just like planted him in the brain and that was it. But Trotsky got up and was like fighting him off and people came in and kicked this guy's butt. And he survived in the hospital for like a full day after this before wow. he died. Well, yeah, Litvinenko, he survived long enough that he helped solve his own murder. There's a really great Guardian oh, article right. um, on it called uh, Alexander Litvinenko, The Man Who Solved His Own Murder. And uh, it's definitely worth reading for sure. Yeah, I mean, just a couple of years ago, uh, what was that guy's name? Skripal? Sergei Skripal? Mm-hmm. He was, he was the one with the nerve poison. He wasn't killed. It was an attempt on his life, though. Yeah, but it was just it's just like every time you think, man, this is Cold War stuff, it just pops up in the news again. And you're like, man, it's still happening. Yeah, and I mean, we should say both of those attacks were in London. Like, this wasn't in Russia or Moscow or anything like that. This was in London. These guys lived in London in exile, and they were still murdered in London 
through like radioactive material and nerve gas that was smuggled in the country. And that actually is, is kind of goes to stand as evidence that there still are these illegals, these um, deep cover sleeper agents that are working for what used to be the KGB and is now the FSB. Yeah, and that's why it's a really big deal uh, that a president of the United States would want to cozy up to somebody like Putin who uh, is making great efforts to put who he wants in office. Yeah, I mean, that's it's just pure and simple. Like that's It's unbelievable. Absolutely, Chuck. Well said. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else but rage. <laughs> so if this floated your boat, go check out Spies, Election Meddling, and Disinformation, Past and Present. It's a great article. Check out um, Alexander Litvinenko, the spy who solved his own murder, the man who solved his own murder. Check out The Big Think. They had a good one called The History of the KGB and Its Legendary Methods. So I think you'll like all three of those. And since I said I think you'll like all three of those, it's time for Listener Mate. Uh, this is about the heroin lozenges. Remember that when mm-hmm. I w- wondered if they were still around? So uh, this is from Martin. Hey, guys, in the heroin episode, Chuck was wondering if there are any still uh, heroin lozenges lying around somewhere. And jo- uh, Josh quickly refuted, but Chuck, you have been vindicated. I work in an unnamed museum in an unlamed, unlamed <laughs> location in Canada. I'm not even going to say where in Canada, even though he does. And we have four different packages for heroin lozenges from Bayer. Uh, they're under Crazy. lock and key, of course. Uh, we received them in a donation from a local pharmacy that closed down in the 30s. And they gave the museum a wide array of drugs to add to the collection, uh, along with the heroin. We also have a bottle of arsenic and two packets of amphetamines. One package has two pills missing. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, love the show. You guys are keeping me sane during quarantine. I steadily make my way through your back catalog. That is from Martin. Nice, Martin. Um, that was much appreciated. Thanks for shining some light on that one. Uh, and if you want to shine some light for us, we love that kind of thing. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.